after a summer of it growing, it arrived composted. They didn't pack it well. And suddenly I had to find 72 pounds of fresh organic wormwood in a hurry. Hey, you're 86. I'm Justin Myers, and this is a show about how bartenders handle bad situations. Welcome back. Today's episode is brought to you by Absinthia Organic Absinthe. Ever thought about becoming a spirits producer? My guest today is Absinthia Vermoot herself, and she had a ton of great advice to share about how she started a craft spirits company. Let's get into it. Yeah, yeah. So Gina um, is my distiller. Nice. She's been great to work with. That's awesome. Yeah. Yeah, right on. Um, So yeah, um, maybe you can just start by telling me a little bit about your product. Sure. Um, I make an organic absinthe. I started making absinthe. I first had absinthe in 1996 Mm. at a San Francisco Cacophony Society party. They are the group that brought Burning Man out to the Black Rock Desert. And I was invited to an event called the Proust Wake, Mm -hmm. which was a Marcel Proust reading. And there was a bowl of this green liquid in the back of the room. I was told it was absinthe. I didn't really know what that meant. Um, I had all these weird associations with what absinthe was way back then. I think a lot of people did and still do. And still do. Yeah, totally. Um, and so I tried it and I just absolutely loved it. And um, part of my background is as an art historian. And so I really first discovered absinthe through the aesthetics of absinthe and just went down this rabbit hole of absinthe art and paintings and poetry and on all of that. And then uh, the friend who made it for that party gave me the recipe, told me it was a recipe from a family in the French countryside, but it was Everclear and <laughs> <laughs> tincture, wormwood and anise tinctures from the mission. Wow. Um, and the first time I served it at a friend's party, they started calling me Absinthia. Mm. And that's just a nickname that has stuck and is now my legal name. Wow. Wow. So my absinthe is currently uh, produced uh, organically here in California. Uh, I use vintage Swiss recipes for my absinthe, so it's very traditional tasting. Mm. And I have the Blanche for about a year and a half. And the Vert, I finally nailed the recipe in the last few months, and it's currently in the federal testing labs, and then we'll head over to the federal label approval, and hopefully it won't be as slow as as the Blanche. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. So let's talk a little bit about um, why... So you fell in love with Absinthe and decided this was uh, what you wanted to do. You wanted to start a company. Um, What was that... What was that decision like for you? What, what what was kind of that moment where you're like, yes, I'm doing this? No, that's a that's a great question. Um, Ten years after I started bootlegging my absinthe, all of a sudden it was legal, mm. which is not something I ever expected to have happened in my lifetime. And I, I really thought about it, and I knew the three-tier system and the laws and the regulations were really complicated, there's no book on how to launch an alcohol company um, mm. to just figure it all out. And I thought about the end of my life. Would I regret not even trying? And I decided that I would. And mm. so I, I went for it. Mm. So what was the first step that you took? Writing a business plan. Mm. And as an artist, 
that was nearly impossible. So that took me several <laughs> years you. to even figure out how to write a business plan before I even put one down on paper. Um, I took a course at the Renaissance Entrepreneurship Center here in oh, San yeah, Francisco. I know them. Yeah. They're great. Yeah, they have a business plan course. It was several months long. It was very affordable. And I actually won an award for my my business plan, which was wow. great. And so they really helped me got over get over that hurdle before I got the business up and, and formed. Nice. So I imagine it's just been a ton of work. Um, what... It's 24-7. <laughs> <laughs> Can you walk me through kind of the, the stages of... So you were bootlegging Absinthe as kind of a hobby because you were in love with the thing and then you wrote this business plan and um, kind of what was the trajectory of when you started there to where you're at today? In hindsight, I would do it entirely differently. But that said, I didn't know what I know now. So I... I hired people to help me. I worked with mm. attorneys and I worked with web designers and copywriters. And I just, you know, I knew exactly what I wanted to do. I needed help doing it. Um, you know, how do you get an ABC license, which is the right ABC license? How do you get the federal license? How do you get your label approved? What information needs to go on that label? You know, all those different questions were, were was really where I started from. Mm. Um, so after the business plan, what, where, where do you go? You just kind of follow the plan or, um, if someone is, is like, uh, I think there's a lot of bartenders, um, that are kind of interested in stepping out from behind the bar and doing something new. And I think a lot of people are interested in, in spirits, especially cause there's like a push for like small producers and quality made stuff now. Um, so if you, you mentioned that you would do things differently. Um, what would you do now? Now I would do the work myself. Mm -hmm. I wouldn't spend all that money. I have a, had a lot of startup expenses mm. simply because I just didn't know what the process was to go through. Now I understand the process and it's a lot of paperwork and a lot of researching and a lot of dealing with government agencies. But you know, now that I understand the process, I would probably do it more myself. But at the time, I, re I really didn't. So I'd say the first step is to work on getting your license and simultaneously work on your recipe. And I would recommend getting that label in as early as possible. It took mm -hmm. me 23 months to get my labels approved. Wow. Yeah. Yeah, The that's the same thing I've heard with people who open bars and stuff. It's just like all the regulations around alcohol are, are just... So stressful. Maybe you could say a little bit more about dealing with the ABC and the government. That seems like a, one of the biggest hurdles. Yeah, it really is. And um, I got my ABC license and then I had a customer say to me that he wouldn't work with me because I had the wrong type of license. I was in the wrong tier. Mm. And so one of the most important things is to figure out which tier you're really in. I'm working with a distiller and I was in the distiller tier but I was also acting as my own distributor, and so I needed to be in the wholesaler tier. Mm. I ha ended up having to change my ABC uh, license, which took 10 months and dozens of phone calls <sighs> and visits to the office here in Oakland and in, in uh, Sacramento. 
Um, so yeah, the three tier system can be really hard to navigate, not only from a licensing point of view, but also from just a sales point of view. I have customers out of state that I can't sell to. Mm-hmm. I have, pe- I have friends across the country who want my product and because of state laws, I can't ship it. I need to get a distributor in that state and having a distributor in that state without actually being there and having boots on the ground, you're just not going to make any sales. So Mm. It's, that's been tricky to navigate. So how many different people were, and obviously you have done most of the work, but how many different people have you worked with and what were those roles? My distiller is probably the, the biggest and most important. She's become a really great strategic partner. She knew nothing about absinthe, but she, the way she works uh, on an organic biodynamic grape farm with a beautiful copper pot still I, I knew I needed to work with her. And so I came to her with a vintage absinthe recipe that we sort of picked apart and figured mm. out what, how we wanted to do it. Another important person I work with is an organic farm in South Oregon mm. that provides all the herbs for me. So the herbs that you need for absinthe are different. They grow in a different climate than the grapes for the base alcohol. Right. So I needed to find a different farm for that. I would love to have everything grown here in California. It's just been, I haven't been able to find the, the right farm to do it the way that this farm in, in Oregon does. So they've been great to work with as well. My friend Emily is director of finance at a nonprofit, and she's helped me with my books and figuring that all that part of it out. Um, gosh, what else? Uh, Diana Thompson has helped me with every step of my web developments. Mm. Kate Elbizri has helped me with my bottle design, my logos. Um, I have several mentors in in different industries and different businesses, different sides of the bar that have just been there for me to ask questions and and get advice from. So that's been really helpful as well. Hmm. So tell me about the the day-to-day. Now that you you are up and running, you're distributing a product, uh, what is kind of like, the day-to-day of running this business? Every day is different, which makes it exciting. My big focus for this year right now is sales, but I have, there's lots of different angles and aspects that I need to work on. So there's uh, education around absinthe, and I'm actually starting a podcast to help with that. Um, There's sales, just going out and meeting with different people, uh, there is uh, any government thing that comes up, a recipe's ready, it's time to get it off to the government. Um, there's bookkeeping. Uh, there's you know current account management. There's making new appointments with new potential customers. Uh, and then, you know, there's always social media and, and marketing <laughs> stuff to do too. Right. What kind of educational resources did you kind of pick from when starting this company and maybe ongoing. What do you mean by educational resources? Like uh, you had to learn quite a bit, I'm assuming. Mm-hmm. Um, how, did, how did you learn all that stuff? Well, as I mentioned, I used the Renaissance Entre- Entrepreneurship Center to help me with my business plan. That was amazing. Um, I've also since gone back and got my MBA. Mm. One of the reasons for that was... As an artist, I really needed the education on how to run a business. 
Also, as a woman in the industry, I felt without that degree, I just wasn't being taken as seriously. Mm -hmm. So I went back to school and got my master's. So that was really, really beneficial as well. Now I know how to spreadsheet. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. Um, And then, you know, turning to my mentors. Um, Like I said, I have people on both sides of the bar that are, you know, there for me and pick up the phone when I call and and help me out with my questions. Mm. Was there ever a moment... Uh, during this process, the, I guess what was the what was the most challenging moment? Was there a moment where you, like, almost gave up, or or was like, oh, this is too much? I don't know about this. Where you questioned continuing? There are a couple moments like that, and they still <laughs> happen. Yeah. Um, a few that I can think of. One was, you know, just my getting my label rejected four times before it was approved. Mm. Um, another was I was working with a different vendor for my, or a different farmer, I should say, for my wormwood. And after a summer of it growing, it arrived composted. They uh. didn't pack it well. And suddenly I had to find 72 pounds of fresh organic wormwood <laughs> in a hurry. <laughs> oh, no. So, so. And, and figure out how to convince the farmer that, you know, I really shouldn't be charged for this, this herb that you didn't pack well and you know negotiating that was 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 really challenging and I think that was one of the hardest things in the beginning was figuring out who to work with and who not to work with Mm. let's let's talk a little bit about that because one of the things that I think is most interesting about wine and spirits is that they very much are an agricultural product Um, from a consumer perspective you don't always think about that because you go to a liquor shop or a bar and you you buy a bottle off a shelf but all of these things come from the ground. That's um, right. What is it like dealing with uh, farmers and, and 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 the climate and all this kind of stuff? Can you talk a little bit about that? One of the most interesting things I think is that my customers are all available afternoon. Farmers want to talk early in the morning. <laughs> <laughs> so um, you know, it's it's that's kind of interesting as far as when to schedule calls and when to plan to talk to people. But it really is. It's it's all, it's very agricultural. It, it, it depends on the climate. And as I was looking for a farm in, you know, Marin or that area to help me in with my herbs, there were all these fires. Mm-hmm. So um, talking about the risks in my business plan, I really had to start thinking about climate change and fires and, the weather and, you know, knowing that there could be a year where I just simply can't produce any product Mm. and planning for that. How do you plan for that? When you have a good harvest, you make more than you need. Mm. Yeah. So, uh, if, if things grow really well one year, maybe I'll buy twice as much wormwood and, and anise as I, as I actually need to produce. And set it aside in, in a way that it, that it will last until the following the following year when we need it. So just planning for worst case scenarios. Mm. How does that factor into um, your cost of doing business, like buying these all this extra stuff and um, kind of trying to balance that out for the future? It can make it really challenging. So it can mean that your cogs for one year are twice as much just planning for a year ahead. Um, I mean, I'm fortunate in that I'm not making a barrel aged whiskey that's going to sit for 30 years. Mm -hmm. But from year to year, the cogs and the production and the sales can vary depending on the farming cycles. Mm. And how do you how exactly do you find 
these farmers. I think uh, these days people are really focused and really care about finding organic farming or people doing you know biodynamic practices in wine. Um, how do you find a, a, a wormwood producer or things like that? You just start talking to people and asking them. Unfortunately, you can't Google organic wormwood <laughs> farmer. <laughs> it just, it's just not that easy. Yeah. Um, and a lot of it is just, you know, word of mouth and, and, and asking around and following leads until you get to the right person. And mm. then, you know, that right person may not have the, the product, the quality may not be there. Like I said, I had problems with that one wormwood producer and mm-hmm. won't work with them again. And the ones that I do work with now, I absolutely love. And I want to find someone in California, and that's been really challenging. So it's really just a matter of being persistent and just following that thread of word of mouth. Mm. What is the community like? Uh, are you well connected with other small producers? Um, is, it, is it a supportive community? Or? It, it really is. Um, and it's, it's fun when we all get together. There's events, um, you know, the Craft Spirits Carnival here mm-hmm. in San Francisco, I've also recently joined the Women's Cocktail Collective, which is an organization of, there's probably two dozen of us at this point, of women-owned spirit brands. And as women in this industry, it's really challenging. It's always been a very, you know, big boys club. I mean, you think about pre-prohibition where it was all gangsters and mafia. (laughs) (laughs) We're only a couple generations away from that. It's amazing the the, the effects that you still see today of prohibition it's, uh, on, it's the, sure on the is. whole industry. It sure is. And I was just talking to someone about um, this, the three-tier system and, and how challenging it is to have to follow that method and not be able to make sales because I'm small and I don't have global distribution. Mm-hmm. Um, but the Women's Cocktail Collective has just been a really great organization of women working together, sharing resources. Some of us are just starting out. Some of us have been around for 10 years. And so we're sharing knowledge and events and, um, you know, just having a, a great time helping each other out and sharing, um, you know, struggles and successes. Mm. Maybe you can talk a little bit more about the struggles of being a woman in this industry. What have, what have you had to overcome and, and how did you do that? I had a GM of a hotel a couple of years ago say to me, "Ah, oh, you started a business." Wow. <laughs> I mean, I went back to school. I got my MBA because I wasn't being taken seriously and yes, I sure needed the education to know how to run a business, but I at least 50% of that was for the perception of it and I mm. put those three initials after my name on everything. And it really has made a difference in how people see me. Wow. Um, I want to go back to another thing that you talked about, which was the, the labeling. Um, what, it seems like that was such a huge challenge. And I've heard this from, uh, like I visited St. George Distillery and they had similar issues with their absinthe label. Um, why is the label important and why does the government push back so much on these labels you know i have no idea <laughs> we submitted a label and they rejected it and didn't actually put a reason why mm. i assumed it was because i wanted to use the brand name as absinthia for a product of absinthe and it was just too similar so we changed brand names we changed designs and they rejected that too mm. 
And so we changed brand names, we changed designs, and they rejected that too. And then I actually hired an attorney down the street from the TTV in Washington, D.C. Wow. And he submitted my first label. He said, which one do you want of all these different designs, all these different brand names? I said, I want the first one. And so he submitted that, and I didn't hear from the guy for about five months. Wow. And I finally heard from him, and he said, we did it. It's been approved. And I said, did it really take five months or however long it was? And he said, well, I actually heard back. It was rejected. I forgot to call you because I got busy with another client. (laughs) Missed the deadline and just resubmitted it fresh. And it worked. Wow. No idea why. So it's just like a bureaucratic circus, basically. That's (laughs) well put, yes. (laughs) You just have to keep like poking at it and then it works. Yeah, and you never know. You never know it's going to end up on somebody else's desk and they're just going to stamp yes on it or... I mean, it's, you know, it's just... It's so funny to think that there's, like, people behind all these things. Yeah. <laughs> you know, it's, people get scared about changes in the government, but it's like, well, oh, guys, we got some time. Like, <laughs> the people that are the government actually are very slow. And yeah, it's, it's one of the very things that slow, and us. they're usually understaffed because of budgets and all right. of that. But the one thing that I've really learned about making products, they're going to be ready when they're ready. Mm. It's not really up to me. What is it like to sort of take care of yourself or having that understanding, what is it like to kind of take care of yourself emotionally through like, how do you stay balanced when through this process of running a business? I think staying balanced is something that I don't even shoot for. Mm -hmm. I just don't think that's really a reality or an achievable goal. Um, You know, in addition to my absent business, uh, Jared Hirsch and I have a cocktail syrups business. Mm. I'm a single mom. I am only a year out of grad school. Wow. It's been, it's been a lot. Um, I just try to compartmentalize and what I'm working on, what I'm working on, or if I'm with my kids or if I'm, you know, out with friends, that's, that's what I'm focused on. Mm. And I really try not to let the other stuff seep in. That said, I work a little bit every single day there's always something going on mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. but it sounds like being really present with whatever you're doing is exactly helpful. yeah yeah and making sure i eat well and get some exercise so i have the mm-hmm. stamina to keep going yeah so absinthe uh we, we mentioned earlier is still seems to be kind of a misunderstood product i i get asked every time i serve it is mm-hmm. it going to make me hallucinate yeah is it legal is it legal it's not without worm it's not made with wormwood right that's why it's legal I and mean, there's just so much that's misunderstood about this product and that's why i'm starting that podcast all about absinthe Mm -hmm. education um there's only been one other absinthe podcast that was started and they lost the plot real fast i think by episode two or three they Mm. were talking about movies and motorcycles (laughs) i'll tell you it's hard to run a podcast too (laughs) (laughs) yeah yeah so um so my intention with that is really just to, you know, have the information. There's so many different aspects about absinthe. For me, I think it's endlessly fascinating. There's the legalization, the rumors and the lies and the propaganda. There's uh, the aesthetics of absinthe. Um, you know, there's just so much. And so I'm actually really looking forward. I've done my my intro podcast. It's on my website. Oh, cool. And um, I've got a couple interviews lined up. And I'm, you know, just really excited to start working on that and, and getting that out there. And in the hopes that someday, you know, I won't have to 
Tell people that it's not hallucinogenic. <laughs> <laughs> it seems like it could almost be something that, that is exciting about the product. The fact that it is misunderstood is it can be like a positive thing because it's, you know, it, they say that, that no press is bad press. You know, it creates opportunity. Mm-hmm. It's something to talk about. It's still alluring and interesting to people. Um, it's not, you know, it's not just another whiskey, tequila, gin, whatever it is, but it's it's such a small category. And some people just, you know, a lot of people, I should say, still haven't tried it, haven't mm-hmm. experimented with it, um, don't understand how to use it in cocktails. And it, it creates opportunity. Mm. I also feel like it's it's an interesting product in the same way that a lot of other products like really peaty scotch or mezcal or... Um, it's a very strongly flavored product that is maybe not particularly approachable, especially in the American market. Um, how have you tackled that and gotten people to try it? Because you, you hear so many people that are like, oh, I don't like licorice. It's gross. Um, <laughs> um, how, do you, how do you tackle selling a product that, that tastes like anise to the American market? Yeah, that's a that's a great question. One thing I tell people is to think of a fresh fennel salad rather than a Mike and Ike's candy. Mm. The other is that I firmly believe that if if an absinthe requires a ton of sugar, it's just not well made. It's not well balanced. It's too bitter. And Americans don't like that. So, you know, after 20 years of making it for my friends and using them as guinea pigs and taking an herb out and adding an herb in and seeing what they think. I've really gotten to understand what that palette is and what people will like. So I've worked, uh, my distiller and I have worked really hard to create an absinthe that is not bitter and that doesn't need sugar. Mm. So um, the biodynamic grapes as we use as a base alcohol creates natural sweetness. I also don't use dried wormwood, which is very traditional. I actually use fresh wormwood. Hmm. When you dry herbs, they lose the moisture. They tend to get more bitter. So the fresh wormwood uh, creates a natural sweetness in the bottle. Hmm. And what is your relationship like with with bartenders and, and people working at the bars? Because that's sort of like a, a big vector for getting products out to the public. Um, and there's, a, there's a long history of absinthe in cocktails. And, and where do you see the future of absinthe in cocktails and bars going? So um, Death and Company recently put out an article saying that they were, quote unquote, microdosing with absinthe, <laughs> <laughs> which I really don't like the use of that term with absinthe because uh-huh. you're not dosing anything. Especially because of the connotation exactly, of it being hallucinogenic. It's right. kind of counterproductive. It, exactly. It's very counterproductive, but... What they're doing is they're using a little bit of absinthe in just about every cocktail, but just not listing it as an ingredient mm-hmm. because it scares people off or people think they don't like the flavor of it. But the absinthe is used in that sense almost as a bitter mm-hmm. where it just adds that something to a cocktail. Mm. That is interesting. We, we, we actually do that here with quite a few cocktails. Or there's, there's the, you know, like the Sazerac, I think is a perfect example with the absinthe rinsed glass. It's right. It's just like kind of that flavor ties it in. Yeah, yeah, and, and I, I love that the, where that comes from. So Sazerac is the, um, the drink of New Orleans. Mm-hmm. And when they started, 
the water wasn't really that sanitary. <laughs> so they would rinse the glass with absinthe to make sure that the glass was sanitary and good to drink out of. And then, of course, it made a fantastic cocktail. Mm. That's amazing. Um, do you have any other stories like that of absinthe? Maybe <laughs> it's, it's such a fun category and there's just so much there's so much to it. Um, yeah. One of my other favorite cocktails is uh, Death in the Afternoon. Ah, it's a great one. And Death in the Afternoon is a Hemingway story about bullfighting. Mm. He was a huge absinthe fan and an alcoholic, but he loved his absinthe. And when I make a Death in the Afternoon, I, I pour a splash or two. I have usually have these little dasher bottles. I, I put a little absinthe on the bottom of the glass, fill it up with champagne, and then put a couple dashes on the top. Hemingway's recipe for Death in the Afternoon is to use a jigger of absinthe, which is a full shot. <laughs> and fill the rest up with champagne and then drink three or four of these slowly all afternoon, which I don't know about you, but I would end up on the floor. <laughs> <laughs> That's certainly one way to spend the afternoon. That was, that was how Hemingway wanted to spend an afternoon. I but mean, his recipe was just way too strong. Yeah. So for a more balanced death in the afternoon, I would just use a few drops in the bottom, a few drops in the top of the glass of uh, champagne. Mm. So where do you plan to go next with your brand? Uh, currently working on uh, several new products. So as I was first getting involved in absinthe, I discovered that my last name, Vermouth, is German for Wormwood. And so I have decided that my brands will be organic beverages made with Wormwood. Mm. And so researching that, I currently have an absinthe Verit waiting government approval at this point, and I'm learning how, teaching myself how to make vermouths and amaros, which are both traditionally made with wormwood. Right. Um, so just expanding the product line to include organic wormwoody beverages. Great. Great. Well, thank you so much for being on the show. Thank you. It was really a pleasure to talk to you. Yeah, likewise. This was fun. That was Absinthia Vermouth with Absinthia Organic Absinthe. You'll find a link in the show notes for more information on the brand. Starting a spirits company is a lot of work, but it can be extremely rewarding. We've heard it before with other businesses as well, but if you're interested in starting a company, begin by writing a business plan. There are a lot of great resources and templates out there to help you do that as well. Give it a try. That's it for this week, but stay tuned for more. And be sure to check us out online, yourd6.com. That's Y-O-U-R-E-E-6.com. I'll see you next time.